Coming up on today's show, we'll speak with Premier Daniel Smith and opposition leader Rachel Notley about the year that was and what lies ahead. We'll also talk about the big election win last night for the Democrats in Georgia. And it's been a year in Ukraine as well. We'll take a look back at where we started and how much our thinking has changed around the Russia-Ukraine crisis. Well, this has been an incredibly eventful year in Alberta politics, hasn't it? I mean, they all are. They all are. We never have a dull year when it comes to politics in Alberta. But I think this year uh, maybe even sets the bar at an all-new high. And it's not even over yet. There's a lot happening as we speak. But uh, as I told you, this, uh, for all intents and purposes, will serve as our year-end chat with the Premier, a long-standing tradition for media outlets and politicians alike. And we're delighted that Premier Daniel Smith has taken some time to join us this morning. Uh, Premier, thanks so much for being here. Appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure, Shane. Nice to talk to you. We'll get to some of the current event stuff if we have time a little bit later. First of all, though, it is our year-ender. So, I mean, how do you sum up this year? If you think back to where you were, particularly a year ago, to where you are now, I mean, it's mind-boggling how things have changed. It really is. I think I think we're we've really turned a corner though. Back in February was a bit of a, 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 a I think a, a pivot point for Alberta when we realized that we could start moving on and treating COVID as endemic, and there was a, a huge appetite to do that. And that that really I think helped with the leadership race through the summer with all of us taking the same position that we were going to move to endemic. We're not coming back into restrictions. It got people I think feeling confident again that they could go out and do their activities and get their kids' life back to normal, and that they could get their businesses restarted again and it wouldn't be interrupted and i think we're beginning to see how that is that is playing out there's just so much consumer confidence out there so much investor confidence and i think that that's a a really exciting turning point for this province for you personally if you think back to where you were at the end of 2021 uh how realistically would you say you thought you might be premier at the end of 2022 i mean i know it was on your radar you talked about it you'd mused about running for it um but realistically did you have any inkling that this might shape up this way you you can never anticipate what's going to happen in politics i mean i remember when i left politics in 2014 i was probably the most unpopular person in alberta and it lasted for a long time and fortunately i had an opportunity to be on talk radio for nearly six years and i think that that got uh, I had a lot of people forgive me for that blunder in that process. And uh, I think it, it paved the way for people to, to realize that I still had a little bit more to contribute. And I had, I had said if the job came open, that obviously I would put my name forward to run again. And and so when it came open, I, I kind of locked myself into it. And when I run for something, I run to win. And, and that's part of the reason why I guess I'm here today. But no, I wouldn't have anticipated this a year ago. Um, and you jumped into the leadership and uh, what became sort of the, the signature um, platform plank, which continues to this day, is relations with Ottawa, the Sovereignty Act. Um, was that the goal? I mean, is that the overarching Danielle Smith focus of her political career as she relaunches as Premier of Alberta? Or did that just sort of grow into what it grew into as the leadership campaign went along? I mean, where did it rank when you got started? The number one thing for me was that I was beginning to see the same divisions happen in our conservative movement that I've watched through my entire political career. Uh, I don't know what it is about conservative coalitions, but they seem so unstable that you end up with, whether it's a rural-urban divide or a divide between social conservatives and those who are libertarians, or whether it's an east-west, but it does seem like if you do not proactively manage when there are problems within your movement, it ends up 
busting apart and people go off and create a new party. And that was what I was worried about when I got into the leadership race is that rural Alberta was really angry and people who hadn't had voted for the previous government on the basis of standing up to Ottawa felt let down. People who had believed that they were voting for a party that was going to defend their freedom felt let down. And so I wanted to make sure that those who were disenfranchised and considering voting for someone else said, no, no, I was able to say to them, no, come back in. We're going to address these issues and then we're, we're going to rebuild this coalition. So the leadership race was that first process is why I identified a couple of the issues that I did that I ran on. But the, the ones that I think really connect all of us together as Albertans is we, we've got to make sure we keep our jobs and economy growing. We had done such a great job as a government over the last three and a half years rebuilding investor confidence. We've got the highest level of venture capital coming into the province. We've got a consumer uh, confidence index increased 2.9 points in November, whereas everybody else's decline nationally is down 5.3 um, uh, points. We've got new investment being inv- announced by all of our oil sands companies. That is something we've got to keep on going. And then the other part is that if we're going to have the richest economy generating surpluses, we've got to take care of people because there are, is a huge affordability crisis that we're facing among our seniors, among our vulnerable, among our parents with kids. And so we wanted to make sure we provided a level of support for them as well. We're still paying off the debt. We're going to pay down $13.4 billion worth of debt. And then also, we absolutely have to fix health care. It's unacceptable that we have the highest amount that we're spending on health care in Canada compared to the rest of the world. Alberta spends more than virtually every other province. And I came into this position hearing about 29-hour waits in emergency rooms mm-hmm. and, and ambulances lined up 22 deep at our hospitals in Calgary and Edmonton. That is unacceptable. And I think that we've got a lot of resolve, not only from Albertans, but certainly from our caucus to make some movement on that. So I would say that that's my most important target right now. Um, You know, and like you say, bringing back in the rural people who felt they were disenfranchised and all the rest of those things. And you're absolutely winning in that regard, I think, when it comes to the Sovereignty Act and some of your other positions. But, I mean, there was a poll out this week, I think it was Leger that put out the poll that said, you know, it's like one in three Albertans that think the Sovereignty Act is even necessary. They've got other things on their mind. Healthcare being one of them have you lost have you lost sight of like you said when you won you had to govern for all albertans are you doing that if you've got one in three worried about the sovereignty act and that's all we're talking about this week well meanwhile we've got you know children's hospitals collapsing under the weight of the tridemic or whatever it's called well let let me say this i think if we asked albertans do you think we need to stand up to Ottawa to keep them out of our business? I think you would probably get close to 100% saying yes, because Ottawa is part of the reason why we have investment dollars that have fled major projects that have been cancelled over the last seven years. So I think if you, they may, there may be some work I need to do to convince people that my Sovereignty Act is the right way of, of going after Ottawa, but I don't think that there is any doubt that Albertans want us to, to push Ottawa back in its own lane. As for healthcare, I mean, it's part of the reason why when I found out about this crisis in children's Tylenol that I asked my team here, I said, okay, AHS, they keep telling me that they've got the very best procurement department in the entire country. Prove it. Let's see if we can go find some products so that we can get um, children's acetaminophen and ibuprofen in the hands of parents. We're at the beginning of respiratory virus season. And as you point out, we've got COVID, influenza, and RSV. And so yesterday we were able to make the announcement that our AHS team, to their great credit, 
and managed to, to secure a supply of 5 million bottles. And we're working collaboratively with the federal government to get the final approvals from Health Canada. That's what collaborative federalism actually looks like. And we'll be able to hopefully have those bottles in the hands of parents in, in very short order so that they can have some comfort going into the into the, the rest of the Christmas season. And part of the, the reason that is so important is that's what's putting the extra pressure on our hospitals is that when, when parents have a young one and they can't clear the fever, uh, it's really dangerous. They can, there's, there can be seizures at those who are under the age of six. And so they go to the hospital and that is what is, is putting the extra pressure there. If we can give them the medication so they can take care of that at home, then we're going to be able to take the pressure off the system. The other thing I'd say is once again, in pushing Alberta Health Services Management to be proactive, we've, we've put in Dr. John Cowell, who's our official administrator, and he is telling them every single day, make a decision, make a choice, find an answer, I'll back you. And one of the things they did at the Children's Hospital is set up a fast track so that if families are coming in for minor ailments, now there's a fast process to be able to treat them and get them on their way so that they, so that we can, we can make sure that we're uh, focusing the, the attention that we need to on the most serious patients who have to be admitted. So I look at those as being a success of the approach that we're taking. We are not going to be hands-off. We are going to be pushing every single day to ask Alberta Health Services, our, our provider of health care, to do better, to be better, and to, and to make sure that they're, they're, they're living up to the expectations of Albertans. Um, when shortly after you were sworn in as premier, you tried to put some distance between your role as premier and your role as, well, host of this show. And you said, you know, that you'd evolved and, and some of your thinking had changed. And I, I, I began to wonder immediately, and I'm glad I've got an opportunity to ask you, around what? Uh, give us an example. What did Danielle Smith say when she was sitting in this chair that she now thinks she got wrong and she's changed her thinking on? You know, I have to tell you, I mean, part of what my process was when I was on the air was I wanted to talk to people across the spectrum. So whenever there was an issue that came up, I had my favorites. I, people won't be surprised at all by that, uh, that I had a lot of favorites. But I would always make sure to identify somebody who was on the other side of an issue. And if there were five or six different perspectives, I would have five or six different people on. And so I, I could probably say that there were countless issues that through that process, I might have started off with a, a very libertarian type of position because that's my my that has been historically my foundational worldview but when you talk to somebody who makes a good argument you have to say hmm maybe i need to modify that a bit and and, and i think that that's an important part of of having these kinds of forums is that you have to be able to hear from everybody so that you can make sure, so that you can keep everybody in the same public square so you can come to some kind of common understanding and move forward i think what might have been a bit different in my old life is that as an opposition leader, you're always sort of looking for the things that you disagree with. When you're on the air, you're always looking for to find some area of common ground. And I think I found common ground with virtually every one of my guests. Yeah, it wasn't about listening, though, I don't think, uh, Premier Smith. It was more about the statements that you made. We can pick any number of them. The uh, hydroxychloroquine was one. Um, people should be spending money to go see their GP was another one. Um, you know, maybe smoking isn't that bad for you. Those kinds of things. I mean, has your thinking changed on a particular issue, I guess, is the question I'm asking. Well, I don't think smoking's good for you, Shay. So, <laughs> so I can tell you that one unequivocally have changed. On the on the issue of, of medications, I guess what I would say is I, I feel pretty strongly that doctors should have the have the freedom to be able to make the decisions about what's best for their patients. And I'm I'm quite concerned uh, about the fact that we haven't given doctors that latitude over the last two and a half years. I don't, I'm not a doctor and I'm not a scientist, so I don't want to take a position on any particular medication. But I, I think the principle that we've got to allow 
our doctors to have latitude to make sure that they are giving the best treatment to their patients. I think we've lost that, and I'd like to go back to that. Um, and on the uh, the issue of, of health spending accounts, I mean, I, I, I very firmly believe that when I'm in the position I'm in, I have to be mindful that we, we've got we've got to do changes in healthcare that fall 100% within the Canada Health Act. That's what I've committed to doing. And so the health spending account, as I'm conceiving it, is that it has to be for the things that are currently not covered by the, the health system. And the, the, the reason I even got the idea in the first place is that we provide these programs for MLAs and for our public service. And it seems a bit unconscionable to me that taxpayers would pay for my health spending account and the health spending account of all of our unions, but we're not paying for the same kind of approach for every Albertan. So I want to make the approach more comprehensive so that everybody has the opportunity to use it to pay for glasses or mm-hmm. chiropractic or or uh, acupuncture. And so, so maybe that is modified a bit, but I, I want to make sure it's confined just to those areas that are not covered by the, by the uh, Canada Health Act. So it sounds more like almost like a universal benefit package rather than saying, you know what, I think it would be a good idea if you had to pay to go see your GP every once in a while. I mean, those are those are vastly different issues. They, they really are, and, and it's not on side with the Canada Health Act, frankly. Canada Health Act covers not only doctor services, but also hospital services, and that's our agreement with Ottawa. If they want to fund our system, then uh, those are the things that have to be universal and have no cost associated with them. And I'm, as I said, I'm not doing anything that's going to violate the Canada Health Act. Uh, last one, and then I'll let you go. We've got about five months now before the election. I mean, it's coming up fast here. Um, in terms of what else might be on the way, we've heard a lot about the Sovereignty Act, and you've done a lot of work around the inflation as well, but I mean, healthcare, I think people are clamoring for help with the healthcare situation. Is there a solution? I know you're saying, you know, you can fast track and you're bringing in the Tylenol, but I mean, it comes down to bodies in a lot of ways. Is there something that you're working on that will provide some relief in the short term for Albertans who are worried about, you know, this weekend? I would say that we'll see results in very short order. One of the things that Dr. John, the John Cowell said when he came in was that he'd never seen so much alignment from me as the premier to our health minister, Jason Copping, to the, uh, the person who is at the helm of Alberta Health Services as our interim CEO, Moro Kiaz. Uh, he's never seen such alignment in a group of people wanting to work together to solve the three key things that we've identified. Number one, people will know whether we're having success because if they get picked up by an ambulance, and they are not waiting hours in the back of an ambulance or 22 deep in line, they will know that we are having some success. That's number one thing we want to fix. Number two, they will know when they go to an emergency room that they will either get treated and released or they will get uh, assessed and admitted, and it won't take 29 hours. That is, that is going mm-hmm. to be the measure of how quickly we can get through the system. And the third is going to be our surgical wait times. We've actually done a pretty good job of reducing the surgical backlog. We're, we're at 69,000 surgeries, but um, it was 68,000 just before COVID. I still don't think that's good enough, but every single person should be able to get their surgery within a medically reasonable period of time. And those are the measures that we're looking at. And that will be, we'll be benchmarking that within the next uh, couple of weeks, and then we'll be measuring our performance against that and that that is going to be the measure and i think we'll make some great progress in the coming months yeah and i know every albertan is hopeful that that does come to bear uh premier smith thank you so much for your time i appreciate you being here all right we are continuing with our year-end interviews. Uh, just had a chat with Premier Daniel Smith. Now it is time to jump over to the opposition benches as we take a look at 2022 from the viewpoint of Alberta's NDP. Joining us now, we have Rachel Notley, leader of the NDP. Uh, Ms. Notley, thanks so much for being here. I appreciate your time. 
It's good to be here. Good morning to you. You know, Alberta politics, as you well know, you've been in it for a long time now. It's always wild. It's There's always something going on. I don't know if it's more chaotic than other provinces. It certainly seems that way. 2022, no exception. Um, just looking back at the year, how, how would you sum it up? Well, I think it's been a hard year for a lot of Albertans. You know, I mean, we've been out... Uh, talking to folks uh, in their communities uh, throughout this year. And, and we've been hearing from folks who are worried about the fact they've, that they've essentially, uh, uh, for all intents and purposes, suffered a pay cut while at the same time trying to uh, uh, pay for their groceries uh, every month. And then at the same time, we're hearing from folks who, who either themselves or their loved ones uh, either have needed or are worried about ha- uh, needing in the future access to our health care. And, and they're very, very concerned about the fact that they can't find a family doctor, that they're worried about whether the ambulance will come when they, when they call, and they're worried, of course, about, about uh, the state of our emergency rooms and uh, surgical wait times. Uh, obviously, all key issues that we've talked about a lot, no question about it. Um, as you well know, the, the year, uh, the news cycle around politics in Alberta and the current news cycle around politics in Alberta has been utterly dominated by the UCP. Um, first of all, their leadership campaign and now the Sovereignty Act. Um, how has it been as leader of the opposition sort of uh, having all of this unfolding? And it's not really been a typical year for an opposition leader or a premier. There's been so much outside of the legislature going on. Well, you know, I think that uh, it's been frustrating to me on behalf of Albertans because the reality is is that, you know, the, the, the vast majority of this year has been completely dominated by the UCP gazing at its own navel, fighting with itself fighting about issues that are internal to their party, uh, constantly fighting. And now they've finally managed to drag themselves out of fighting with each other, and they're back into the legislature, and now they've got this uh, mess of a sovereignty act. And here's the thing. That is not what Albertans have ever been talking to us as being, you know, on the top five or six issues that they're most concerned about. They need someone to talk about, deal with their affordability crisis. They need uh, genuine work to stabilize our health care system and improve the health care people can get access to. And they need to believe that there is some confidence and some stability in terms of leading our province to economic recovery and to uh, uh, resilient jobs opportunities. As you say, we're all busy with the Sovereignty Act right now. It's been dominating the headlines, of course. It's been reworked. We'll be back in the legislature this afternoon. Uh, The Premier says that she had invited you and your party to come forward, submit amendments, have a discussion around this, but you refused to even get involved in that process, instead demanded to just be rejected outright. Is there no common ground? Is there no ability to at least sit down and say, hey, this is something that we think needs to be done? Um, absolutely not, I'm afraid, because this act is a mess. And so let's walk through that. Uh, just today, for instance, we heard from, uh, unanimous, uh, spokespeople on behalf of Alberta's treaties, uh, saying that the bill absolutely has to be withdrawn because it violates treaty rights. And they are taking a motion to the Assembly of First Nations on that, and and so that's a problem. We just had a chance to uh, hear from former Governor of the Bank of Canada, David Dodge, 
who articulated that that uh, the the very introduction of the uncertain and destabilizing sovereignty act is undermining uh, economic uncertainty. And not only does that hurt our economic recovery, he talked about how the long term answer to our inflation crisis is expanding supply, but we can't do that because now people are holding on to their dollars because they don't know what the heck is going on in Alberta. And so that's all happened. Meanwhile, we have a premier who introduced her flagship act and for several days stubbornly and, and rather arrogantly, I would say, accused the opposition of not having read the act, of not understanding the act, and, and of being incorrect in terms of what the act itself said in black and white. Then she finally capitulated and offered up a couple of small changes, but uh, and without acknowledging that she'd misread her act and that we were uh, correct and that she had uh, misled folks about what was in it. But the fact of the matter is, is those aren't the only problems in the act. It up the rule of law fundamentally and where you lose that you lose investors you lose stability and that can't be fixed without withdrawing the whole darn thing but but i mean i understand what you're saying but at the same time as an opposition you know as a critic that's primarily your role in our current setup um you know you you made the criticisms a, a lot of people did and and the government responded and amended the bill i mean that's the process that's the opposition's role is there no benefit at all to saying these are the problems with the bill this is what the governor of the bank of canada the former governor says this is what um our indigenous first nations are saying about it and and presenting that at the table and getting the bill right well, I would say that the bill is so flawed that it's not possible for it to get right in the next whatever 12 hours that we have before they jam it through to pass it. Let's be clear. This is a premier um, who uh, is speeding up the way and the pace at which they are passing this bill at the same time that the level in the chorus of opposition grows. Um, and they, they have introduced time allocation not even a week into their first session to jam the bill through because the in, in a very short period of time, because the longer the debate goes on, the more problems we discover. Bottom line is this bill destroys jobs, and so we can't vote for it, and it is fundamentally flawed. And we are hearing more and more people say that. So, um, so, so, yeah, th- there's just not enough time left to fundamentally restructure it. She should have come into the House with something that, that gave us a frame from which we could start working, but she didn't. She came in with a bit of a dumpster fire, and uh, the only thing to do is put it out and uh, move on. Um. In terms of Ottawa relations, um, there, as you know full well, um, there's the there's the Singh Trudeau coalition alliance, whatever it's called by conservatives, and you're pulled into that. You are you are tied into that. It's the Notley Trudeau alliance when we talk about UCP and as they hit the campaign trail. Um, what is what is your take on where the federal government fits into all this? We're talking a lot about Alberta. I think what Daniel Smith is saying and what she's trying to do resonates with some Albertans, at least. I don't know if it's a majority, but there are a lot of people that think the federal government has overreached, has stepped on Alberta's toes, and you get tied into that, perhaps unfairly, but you do. What is your take on Alberta versus Ottawa or the relationship therein? Well, you know, first of all, let me say that, you know, I don't, when it comes to the Alberta Sovereignty Act, I think that fixing the act is not a thing that the federal government should have anything to do with. I think that Albertans themselves are grown-ups and we need to uh, clear 
the air with the uh, the the mess uh, of the conversation that's happened in the last few days led by our current premier. That being said, when it comes to uh, standing up for Albertans, I always will do that. That is my record. That is my record in opposition. That is uh, my record in government. We have the first pipeline being built to Tidewater in over 40 years in the form of TMX. That happened under my leadership as a result of me, uh, quote-unquote, standing up to Ottawa, uh, campaigning all across the country, finding allies, talking to people who were opposed to it, going into hostile rooms, not yelling at hostile rooms, but making the case in those rooms and pushing Ottawa where necessary to get that done. None of what Danielle Smith is doing, or frankly, that uh, Jason Kenney did before her, has ever really been focused on getting the uh, federal government to change course. It's always been focused on stoking anger internal in Alberta and through that securing political power. But for them, the problem is, is that there's not real practical efforts being made to advance Alberta's interests. They can't point to any success. We can. And my view is that any premier, whether you're a UCP or a New Democrat, must stand for Albertans first. That's what I've always done, and that's what I will always do, and that's what my record shows. Um, as I said, with this, the, the coalition that's operating in Ottawa right now and um, the UCP sort of tying the Alberta NDP in with the federal NDP and then by extension with Justin Trudeau's Liberals, is that fair? Are, are, are you different from the federal NDP? Do you have different viewpoints from Jagmeet Singh? He was here last week saying a lot of things. Um, you didn't push back. He was talking about the federal government stepping in and getting rid of this bill. I mean, how much space is there between the Alberta NDP and the federal NDP? Uh, you know, there are just quite a bit of uh, uh, differences because I represent the people of Alberta and federal politicians, no matter what party they are in, uh, are uh, attempting to lead the country with or without uh, success in that regard. Um, and so there is a tremendous amount of daylight. I have spoken out against things that Jagmeet Singh has said uh, on a number of occasions in the past. I've stood up for Alberta in relation to uh, provinces led by NDP government, uh, because, as I said before, my priority is always going to be Albertans' priorities. And I think, honestly, many Albertans know that. And so this whole alliance thing is hot air dreamed up by a bunch of desperate UCPers who are scared to have an actual election uh, discussion on the basis of the Alberta NDP's record and my leadership versus the UCP's uh, record and their current leadership. That is the way in which we should be having this conversation, not trying to play silly political games to run away from the fact that they have ignored the vast majority of their homework and their focus on their own backyard. Um, one of the issues, and, and you mentioned it earlier, and I think it's one that's on the minds of many Albertans right now, of course, is our healthcare system and what's going on in that. We hear the horror stories out of children's hospitals right across the province. We know that, and this, this is not new. This has been going on for a long time. You've been very critical of the UCP. I guess the question I have is, what would you have them do? Or what would you do? Because it's being duplicated in other provinces. It's, it's happening in the United States. It's not a uniquely Alberta problem. So uh, it's easy to be the critic and say, do something, do something. But if you were in her position, what would you be doing to help people out today, this afternoon with a sick kid? 
For sure. Well, that's a, you know, that's a really, really important question. And so let me pull back for just a moment and acknowledge that what you're saying is, is true, that we have pressures on healthcare systems all around the world. Everybody is, is struggling from the consequences of the pandemic. I, however, would argue that the challenges we're facing in Alberta are worse, uh, that we had farther to fall because we actually uh, had had some stability and some improvements uh, in, in, during the term of our government. Um, and, and now, uh, and, and a lot of that, uh, as a result, um, flows from some particularly bad decisions taken by the UCP over the last three and a half years, ripping up the doctor's agreement, threatening the jobs of nurses, telling respiratory therapists they had to secure a, a 10% rollback in their salaries in the middle yeah, of the okay, but, but what's the solution? All those kinds of things. So that being said, there's a few things that we need to do. First of all, we need to understand that the UCP, outside of emergent and unpredictable funding, has actually cut um, uh, healthcare funding in Alberta over the last three and a half years in the, uh, in the face of population and inflation. And so we do need to be providing more resources. The other thing we need to be doing is we need to be working collaboratively with our frontline healthcare providers, listening to the, the advice that they say, not accusing them of manufacturing a fake shortage, not questioning science. Uh, we need to embark upon what we would do, which is the biggest recruitment effort for frontline healthcare providers ever seen um, in the history of this province. And in the meantime, we need to do the things that, like, for instance, we've got this uh, horrible uh, uh, delays with respect to ambulances. You know, it's been months and months and months that the paramedics themselves have said, you know, it would help us have more folks on the ground if you stopped treating us like casual employees with no rights, gave us permanent contracts and a few benefits. Yet have we seen one move on that front from the UCP? No. Uh, she's very good at firing people. She's reorganizing the, the deck chairs on the Titanic by firing the board, but she's not very good at hiring them. And that's what we need to be focused on because we do know that it's a shortage of frontline health care mm -hmm, workers. Definitely. A big part of the problem we're all facing right now. Yeah, no question. It, 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 is, a, it is a human resources issue. Uh, unfortunately, that's all the time that I have. Um, Rachel Notley, thanks so much for being here today. I appreciate it very much. It is my honor to utter the four most powerful words ever spoken in a democracy. The people have spoken. That is Democratic U.S. Senator Raphael Warnock, who defeated Republican challenger Herschel Walker in a runoff election yesterday in Georgia. Incredibly, incredibly tight. Um, it's, you know, it's one race of many in the recent midterms, uh, but it's a really, really important one, very, very closely watched for a number of reasons. So let's get into it. Uh, we're going to chat now uh, with Matt Lebo, who is department chair and a professor of political science at Western University. Matt, thank you once again for joining us. Appreciate your time. Sure. Good morning. So I guess most importantly, and the reason that this was so closely watched and uh, by everybody around the country is because this victory gives Democrats an outright majority in the Senate, right? That's right. So the um, in the previous Congress, or with the one that's ending now, it was 50-50. And so votes would 
be uh, if they were tied with, uh, you know, complete party line voting, then the vice president would come in and break the tie. But uh, with a 50-50 split, there was also a power sharing arrangement where Democrats, Republicans had equal number of people on uh, committees as well. And the Democrats now don't have to do that. And so a lot of things will be much easier for Democrats, at least in the Senate. Yeah, in the Senate. So when we talk about those committees and the way that the process itself works, they don't need to, I mean, they still have to include some Republicans, do they not? For sure. For sure. But there will be a majority. And so right. there won't be ties within those committees. And then when there's a tie in the in a committee, then the entire Senate has to sort of pull something out of the committee to get it to the Senate floor. And that, you know, with 50-50, everything was so much more difficult. Things won't not be easy, but they will be easier. But like you say, that's in the Senate. Republicans still right. control the House. So it's not like they've got a free pass on anything, right? There's still that... Um, that split when it comes to the different branches of, of, of the government. For sure. And so the passing of legislation will be, you know, uh, incredibly difficult. Democrats will have the presidency and the Senate, but legislation needs to pass both houses. Um, so it's really unlikely that anything, uh, will get, will get done. Um, but the Senate has lots of things that they do without the House. Most importantly, uh, nominations, uh, conf- confirmations of uh, judicial nominations. So if a, um, a spot opens up on the Supreme Court, then having a 51st senator is a, is a big difference. Um, cabinet positions, other, other court positions. Um, 51 is a much better number than 50. Um, in terms of, and like you say, in terms of getting legislation passed and things like that, not holding the House and the Senate will make things extremely difficult for the White House. What about going the other way? Because we know the Republicans, now that they have control, well, they still have control of the House. Uh, they have a number of plans that they wanted to bring into place. They were talking about, you know, if they won the Senate, they'd be talking about all kinds of different things. What does this mean for them in terms of, you know, impeaching Joe Biden and some of the other things that they talked about? Does this change that at all? Well, the House, I expect, will um, proceed with investigations, lots of investigations of uh, Joe Biden and Hunter Biden, and they will you know, want to spend the next two years just trying to give um, uh, the impression of corruption, that uh, the president is corrupt and a lot of lead up to the 2024. But especially with impeachment, um, passing articles of impeachment can happen in the House, but the trial is in the Senate. Right, yes. And so, so long as the Democrats hold the Senate, then nothing serious will, um, will come of it, you know, legally for, uh, for the president or anybody in, in the executive branch. It, it, yeah. It's quite a system, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it really is. Um, interestingly, outside of all of that and, 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 you know, looking ahead to 2024, it was really fascinating to watch, um, the conservative reaction to what happened yesterday. And there's a lot of talk about two things, I think. And first and foremost, the quality of the candidates that the party put forward. There was a consensus, even among the most strident conservative commentators that I watched last night, that Herschel Walker was not fit for office in any way. And they can't, um, put forward people like that anymore. They need to do a better job with candidates. But um, the people just flat out rejected him. If you take a look at the way they voted for the governor in Georgia, he did very, very well. But on the same ballot, Herschel Walker would drop by eight, nine, ten points. So they just they flat out rejected the candidate. So the Republican Party taking a look at saying, you know what, we've got to do a better job on picking our candidates going forward. For sure. I mean, if there had been a a good candidate in Georgia and a good candidate in Pennsylvania, then Republicans might control both the House and the Senate today. And um, so it's it's 
Part of it is uh, the system of primaries, where a famous person with good name recognition has a huge head start in the primaries. And so Herschel Walker is a Georgia football star. Uh, people knew who he was. He had lots of money, and um, uh, that helps him get the primary. And, of course, he had uh, Donald Trump's endorsement, and so that gives him lots of uh, airtime, too, and, uh, and support. And th- that system is really dangerous because it's, it sets up these people who... who um, will do so badly in the general election compared to what um, a better qualified candidate would do. And the, the, the Republican Party is just giving away opportunities mm-hmm. to, to gain uh, seats in the House and in the Senate and, and perhaps, you know, perhaps for the presidency as well. You mentioned the backing of Donald Trump, and that was another thing a lot of them were talking about. You take a look at the candidates that Trump put forward, the ones that he backed. You can think about, you know, uh, Dr. Oz. You can think about Kerry Lake. You can think about Herschel Walker. The list goes on. They lost. A lot of them lost, and you've got people in the Republican Party and saying, you know what, we've, we've got to move away from this. It doesn't have the cachet that it used to. Does that make a big difference going into 2024 in the way that that party positions itself around Donald Trump? I think so. There's just a continuous stream of uh, indicators that Donald Trump will be a weaker candidate in 2024 than he was in either 2016 or 2020. Um, and there's there's lots that happens between now and primaries beginning. You know, lots of um, uh, Republican elites have to decide where they're going to get their money, who they're going to quietly push for. Uh, campaign uh, campaigns can ramp up for Ron DeSantis or for somebody yeah. else, and and there's all this quiet stuff that goes on. Nobody may stand up and say that's it. We have to get rid of Donald Trump and say it loudly and uh, worry about his uh, the backlash from his supporters. But there's lots of quiet stuff that's going on trying to position the Republican Party away from him. Yeah, it'll be fascinating to watch. Uh, Matt, thanks so much for your time. As always, appreciate it. The story of the year, no doubt about it, unquestionably, when you take a look at it, um, will be this one, especially when it comes to international news. It's going to be right at the top of the list, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and everything that's happened in the months following. It started the 24th of February. That's when the invasion took place. And as you know, it is far, far from over. In the meantime, thousands of people have died. Hundreds of thousands have been displaced, many of them ending up here. Um, International economics have been stressed in any number of ways. You talk about the price of fuel, you talk about supply chains, you talk about the price of food. The list goes on and on and on. It's had a massive geopolitical impact. And as I say, there is really no end in sight, at least not at this point. So let's sort of see if we can't get a bit of a bird's eye view of this whole situation, where it started, where it's gone, and where it might be headed. We're going to chat with Andrew Rasoulis, who we've talked to before, a defense expert with the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Andrew, thanks for joining us. I really appreciate your time. Hi, Shay. Glad to wrap up the year with you. Yeah, I mean, what a year it's been. Hey, right? Like, this, yeah. started, this started more than nine months ago now. Now, if we go back to when this started, I think most of us, certainly I did, and I'm no expert, maybe I was completely out to lunch, but a lot of the thinking was, well, this is going to be relatively short and violent. Like, Russia would accomplish their goals quite quickly, being the power they are. That's what the expectation was, wasn't it? Everybody thought that. Uh, the West thought that. Western intelligence thought that. Russians thought that. Russian intelligence thought that. Putin thought that. So, surprise, surprise, Ukrainians didn't think that. And that upset the apple cart. So, basically, in a very short summary, 
Putin uh, was trying, this was all about, from Putin's perspective, he started the war, so you have to understand why he does it. Basically, he is against NATO enlargement. That, take it, that's what he says. Okay, so now he launched, after much debate, dialogue with the Americans, unsatisfactory from the Russian point of view, he launches a military operation, saying, I've got it, this is my only option. So he goes for it thinking he could wrap this up in weeks with a daring yeah. airborne operation, seize uh, the capital, do a regime change, so on and so forth. Well, it doesn't work. The Ukrainians stand up. Everything gets bogged down. The Russians retreat, and a different kind of war starts. The long war now. This is the war in the east, or in the Donbass, in Kharkiv. And this is where we are today. Um, so we were surprised by Russia's ineffectiveness. Were we equally surprised by the effectiveness of the Ukraine resistance? I think a lot of people were really taken aback by just how much resolve there was there, if nothing else. Yes, exactly. Uh, so combination, yes, exactly what you said. Uh, the Ru- we thought the Russians would do a lot better. The Russians did very poorly in their little war with Georgia in the summer of 2008. And the Russians then went through a major reform of their army and, and military since then. And everyone thought that they had a first-class military force in place as a result of those reforms. And the Ukrainians, everyone thought, well, you know, it's a lot of corruption there. There's a lot of less motivation there. You know, they won't stand it. Well, they did. And it's very interesting. And, and the Russian military reforms appear to have been not as effective as we thought they were. So, lessons learned, and here we are today in a bogged-down Western World War I-type front now in eastern Ukraine. Um, now, the international community and the response, like you say, sort of surprised at the beginning, but also really, really heavily involved at this point in a number of different ways. So let's start with the international community and their involvement militarily and what kind of a difference that has made to where we are. Yeah, so one of the very first things about this war, and it was announced by Biden before the war actually started, he said, you know, we have to recall that a war, war is looming, and he knew it was basically coming. But he said, you know, Ukraine is not part of NATO. If a war starts, everyone should know, everyone, that NATO will not go to war with Russia over Ukraine. We will not have World War mm-hmm. Three, but we will then provide everything, all assistance, short of that. Right. So basically, no NATO forces on the ground. That's why we didn't do the no-fly zone thing, because that would have required Western Air Force assets to become involved in essentially into a war. But uh, NATO, uh, as individual countries, not as an organization, has provided an immense amount of equipment. And But, you know, we have to recognize the Americans are supplying basically more than everybody else combined. Right? So everyone's there. Canada's done its bit. But it's really the United States is the arsenal here that has allowed the Ukrainians to keep this war going. It's been the Ukrainian soldiers that have been doing the dying and the fighting, American and Western, but I have to emphasize a lot of American stuff is going in and continuing to pour in. What about the economic... I mean, we've seen so many sanctions. We've seen all kinds of action taken by the international community. Has that proven to be as effective? I mean, how much of an impact do you think that's had on, you know, sort of thwarting the Russian advance? Great question. So I think uh, I think there's been an uh, overestimation on the effect of sanctions. Yeah. Um, and and clearly the Russian uh, are the Russians are able to function. Their economy is functioning. Their military industry is functioning, and their war machine is functioning. And now. 
they are suffering. The, the, the sanctions are having effect, but not sufficient to stop them doing what they're doing. And the Western assumption was, in the early days, you know, we will stop the Russian war machine with these sanctions. And maybe the oligarchs will rise up and overthrow Putin. And all these sort of theories were being played out. None of that has come to pass. The Russians have adjusted. They have done workarounds. They are using simpler systems. They have, But they have lots of stuff, simple stuff. And they have resilience, too. So they, we're now into that other phase of, you know, Russians, we tend to either overestimate them, underestimate them, but they're, they're into the grind yeah. now phase. Yeah, just grinding it out. You know, and we talk about the surprising, you know, resilience of Ukraine and, and how well they've done, uh, much better than people had expected. But we can't overlook the fact that they have suffered greatly, uh, you know, not only in loss of life, but loss of infrastructure. I mean, this is, it's not a success story by any stretch of the imagination. Oh, no, it's a story, it's a story of, uh, of defense, uh, of standing up for Ukrainian nationalist perspectives and so on. A heroic defense, by all means. But with that heroic defense comes a huge cost, uh, lives lost. Uh, the amount of people that are suffering, and they, uh, you know, because of all the uh, power outages and so on. Yeah. So not only are people being killed in the actual kinetic war, the combat war, but also in the, the loss of power and so on. And there are people dying because of loss of energy and so on. You know, and people, sick people who just don't get the care they need, they die. So the point is that they, they are suffering immensely by, by, by this. And the question then becomes, and then the other, that one more point about that, the lives lost. Uh, General Miley, a couple of weeks ago, uh, American uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, said, you know, Roughly, America, uh, uh, Ukrainians and Russians are both have lost roughly 100,000 in casualties. That's dead, dead and wounded on both sides. Okay, but you have to remember, the Ukrainian numbers of people are much less than the Russian number of people. They, although they both went to war with roughly the same amount of troops, 200,000 apiece, and then they each has lost 50 percent. But the Russians have more people they can draw on over time. The Ukrainians have limited amount of people yeah. uh, that they can put into the fight. Uh, so this, and I think in percentage terms, is affecting Ukraine more. And now this will be the challenge. You know, how long can it be sustained in 2023? We don't know, but, it, but it's a challenge. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's the question. We're, we're sort of trying to read the tea leaves, look into the crystal ball. Where do we go from here? Are we any closer to an end now than we were back on February 24th? I don't think so, are we? Well, I mean, uh, it's, that, that's hard to tell. Let me just... I can't predict, but let me tell you the situation. So the, the militarily right now, we are in a bogged down situation. The Russians are doing a limited attack on a place called Bakhmut in the, in, in the Donbass. The Russians have been doing limited uh, attacks in the south on, uh, in, in Kershaw, trying to press, put pressure on Crimea. But we are now into the muddy season. So people talk about winter. Winter, you can fight in winter when the ground freezes. The worst part is now, which is late fall, when the ground becomes mud. And, and there have been interesting photographs in the media of trench lines uh, uh, that show Ukrainian troops in the trench and British troops in the trenches in World War One. They look almost identical. There's water in the trenches, trees are shattered, all that stuff. The question then becomes, how long, uh, like, in the, when the winter comes, the ground freezes, Ukrainians have said they're going to resume the offensives. And so let's assume they will. They probably will. Now, how long will they be able to sustain that? How long will the support in the West, and here let me draw your attention to the United States and their political situation. 
the Americans still the the Democrats control the House the the the, the Senate, but in the House they have lost control to the Republicans. And the Republicans there's a there's an element of Republicans, the Libertarian Republicans, who have been saying we need more uh, vetting of the of the funds and so on. Now they lost a vote yesterday on that, mm-hmm. but they're there. They're 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 going to come back on this one, and there's another poll in the U.S. that 49 percent of Americans roughly uh, saying that you know we we need to explore a solution to end the war. So it's not that there is a fatigue right now that says it's going to stop, but. As we move into 2023, as we move into a winter warfare campaign, which we should, we should expect fighting in the winter, uh, what's going to be the spring like? How it's a sustainable, this is all about sustainability. How long can both sides and everybody who's supporting uh, everybody sustain this? That's the question for 2023. We hear every once in a while, you know, the, prospect of negotiation being raised as a, as a way to end this. How realistic is that in your thinking? Well, it, yes, and, and this past week, there, the, the, these voices have come back. Uh, I mean, uh, Macron has talked about it, the French president, uh, Scholz, the, the German chancellor, has talked about it. But at the end of the and, and and even Putin has talked about it, and Biden has talked about it, but the point is that there's no political basis to do it. There is just sort of a talk about it would be good to negotiate an end to the war. Yes, but on what <laughs> political basis? There we have a huge problem, because there's no, no uh, consensus whatsoever between uh, the East and the West, or, or Russia and the West, in terms of uh, a settlement. Yeah. So that means, in brutal terms, there has to be more bloodletting, more attritional warfare, until the attrition changes the political calculus of all concerned. That's when, at some point in time, and it will happen at some point, all wars end, uh, there will be a most likely a ceasefire rather than a political settlement. You come to the point where you say, Further bloodletting does not advance my political objectives. When both sides come to that point, they have a ceasefire. They did this in Korea in 1953 as an example. Um, last one, I'll let you go, and I really appreciate your time. We're chatting with Andrew Rasoulis, who's a defense expert with the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Um, so when this is over and done, however it ends, regardless, whatever, if it's, if it's a month, a year, five years, I don't know, how has the world changed? I think we've got a new view of Russia and, and, and how much of a force they really are. Uh, and I think we know NATO has been changed. We've got new additions, new members. Ukraine is now knocking on the door. I mean, how does the world geopolitically change as a result of what we've seen in 2022? Fundamentally, this is an inflection point. So we now have uh, power politics uh, in, a, in a big way, geopolitics. Uh, you have the West. Uh, you have NATO, uh, and, there, and that's re- being reinforced. So it's getting stronger and stronger. You have on the other side uh, uh, alternate groupings, looser, looser, like the Chinese, the Russians, the Iranians. You know, these are people who are on the outs with the West, but they are working together. They're not. They don't like each other that much, but you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so that's, there's this other grouping taking place. And the third world, or what we call third world, but the the southern world, um, they're, they're desperate for resources. They're desperate for food, grain, uh, oil still, you know, and this is affecting them. And of course, the Russians are using that as an instrument to keep Curry their favor. So the world, yeah, we're an inflection point. There was a world of 2021, let's say, and the world now whenever this war ends. But it's shifting. There is a new world order being created as a result of this. How the war ends will then finalize where we end up. And we, I cannot tell you how that will look. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, it is fascinating to watch, though, and uh, we always uh, value your insight and your analysis as we go along. Andrew, thanks so much. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.